Hello, everyone. Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sorrow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. God, thank you for today. Thank you for this church. And thank you for the Psalms, for including in your word something that's so rich in human emotion and divine wisdom. I pray that you open our hearts today to hear the message that you have for us in Psalm 126. Amen. Amen. All right, have a seat. At this point, we're going to dismiss all our first and second graders, head on down to the front here, and then all our third through fifth graders across the street, with Lois back there. All right, good morning, Mercy House. How we doing? Got some joy in the house of the Lord this morning? Got some reverb in the house of the Lord this morning? I'm going to resolve that in a second. There we go. I'm, I'm going to move these so I don't fall and go viral that way. We're glad you're with us this morning. I want to welcome you to Mercy House. My name is Tommy Moore. I'm going to be bringing the word to you this morning. So we are seven weeks into our sermon series, Long Road Home. And if you haven't been with us, if you're just joining us right now, the, the gist of it is that we are going through these psalms, which is a collection of songs uh, of 15 psalms in Psalm 120 to 134, which Israel as a nation curated together as, as kind of like a playlist that they would play through as they made their pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. And they did this multiple times a year. The journey was really treacherous. It was really challenging. And so they would sing songs during that journey. And last week we were in Psalm 125, and this is kind of like the key verse. Verse 1, it says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. And so it's this idea last week we talked about how those who trust in God get to experience stability and security like that of a mountain. And what trust means is, is both hearing uh, and obeying the Word of God, bo both practicing theoretical and, and conceptual trust in God, uh, but then also active and practical trust in Him as well. And so in that process, those who build their life on the rock that is Jesus Christ are going to be able to experience the stability of building their house on a firm foundation as opposed to uh, loose sand. And so when the storms of life come, as Naomi was just talking about, those who are actively trusting in Jesus, they, they won't panic uh, they won't flounder, they won't just abandon ship, but they'll be able to experience steadiness of, of both head and of heart. And so ultimately, faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it leads to eternal salvation and an eternal sense of stability. And that eternal stability grounds us here in this world through any challenge or storm that life is going to bring to us. 
And so that was last week. But the reality is that life is about more than just feeling secure and stable all the time. Like, what a lifeless, bland existence if that were the case. Like, if everything we did was just to make sure that we were prepared for storms and challenges that life threw at us. And thankfully, what counterbalances the seriousness of storm preparation are the moments of joy and of laughter that God blesses us with in life. And this is what Psalm 126 is all about, the recounting of joyful moments, understanding where that source of joy actually is, and then looking forward to and praying for more joy to come as we live. So on the long road home, Israel needed this balance. And yes, the journey home to Jerusalem was long and arduous, and it required you to be very vigilant, like you needed to trust in God, you need to have dead set focus, and that would allow you to navigate all the many challenges on that long road home. But what was arguably just as important to staying sharp was staying joyful. Like Israel had a healthy balance of being serious, but then also experiencing delight which more than anything spoke about their relationship with God, the provider of both stability, but then also of joy. And we're going to be talking more about that later. And I think that as we read Psalm 126 this morning, um, what we're going to see is that when we as Christians have a correct eternal perspective, when, when we're able to understand where, tr- where true joy comes from, we can actually experience joy in any season of our lives. So let's just jump in. If you have your Bibles, open up to Psalm 126. You might already be there, but I'll give you a second. I want you to read along with me, starting with verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. The psalmist here is reflecting on a season of joy in Israel's history. The language that's being used is generic enough where we can't pinpoint exactly the moment of context which the psalmist is referring to. And so this phrase, restored the fortunes of Zion, is pretty general. It could be referring to when Israel was released from Babylonian exile. Uh, but it's not exactly clear. It, the fact of the matter is that Israel had many, many experiences of being restored that they could reflect upon here. Uh, and so I think the wording in this song is intentionally a bit vague, so that it really could capture a multitude of experiences of joy for Israel and therefore really be timeless for them as a community and also for us here today. As Israel reflects on their past experience of joy, I think these three verses really help us understand joy in a biblical context. So not joy as we would have it explained by modern pop stars or a Netflix TV show or even a psychologist here, but how God sees joy as he reveals it in Scripture. And so the question is, is what is joy? Well, the first thing that jumps out as we read this passage is that joy is pleasurable. Joy is pleasurable. It's good. It's, it's delightful. I think most of us here can agree intuitively on this point, but sometimes I think in our effort, specifically within the church, to distinguish joy from happiness, we'll say something like, joy is something that you feel deep down inside of you when you're really sad, or when you're really depressed, or when you're really hurt, which absolutely is true. Like You can have joy in those seasons, but let's not take that so far to think that only in this place is where joy can manifest itself, in those deep places of of grief and pain or sadness and hurt. 
here we see the psalmist talking about the experience of joy, which is manifesting itself pretty viscerally. Look at verse 2. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And the joy that they're experiencing isn't really like deep down inside and not bubbling up. It's not like under a cloud or being experienced like behind tears. They are bright-eyed. They are billowing with laughter. In fact, they can't be silent. Their joy is bubbling up, and it's overflowing out of their mouths with shouts of joy. Like they're going, woo! Right? Like that's the joy that they're talking about. My wife, Caitlin, often talks about this season of her life that she spent in western Massachusetts, and she was taking a break from her dance career in Texas. And at the time, she was living with her sister, Naomi, who you just saw up here singing, and with her friend, Virginia. And she always looks back at this because it's a, it's a significant turning point for her life and her career. Um, after that summer, she would choose to actually stay in Massachusetts instead of going back to pursue dance, and that decision would lead to us meeting, and the rest is history. But long before she would meet me, she experienced something that summer while she was living with her sister and her friend, uh, and she was spending her days reading the Bible and, and just growing in her faith. And one morning she woke up, and, and her face was like really sore. Like she was in pain one morning. And, and it worried her, at least until she went to go smile, and then she was like, oh, my face. Well, what, what was happening was that she was experiencing so much joy and so much laughter that she woke up the next morning with like a sore face from smiling that much. Like, talk about a good problem to have, right? And maybe some of you have experienced this too. Like, if your stomach or your rib cage hurt because you were laughing so hard, like, if your cheeks are sore because you've been smiling and having such a good time, like, that's the experience of joy that this psalmist is reminiscing about. In his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is written about the Psalms of Ascents, Eugene Peterson says this about joy. He says, joy is the product of abundance. It is the overflow of vitality. It is life working together harmoniously. It is exuberance. As the psalmist reflects on their joy, they're saying that it was as if they were dreaming, which means that it felt too good to even be true. This abundance, this overflow, the energy, the excitement manifesting itself in, in full-bellied laughter and shouts of joy and, and delight, like that's the joy that the psalmist is describing here. And Mercy House, I want you to hold this in your mind and in your heart this morning as we talk about joy, because this is a biblical picture of joy. It's not the only way that joy manifests itself, but here's my point. I think some of us might say in protest, uh, even this morning as the question was to write down something that makes you joyful, well, I, I haven't experienced joy like that, or, or maybe I don't regularly experience that in my life which might simply mean like you haven't experienced true joy or maybe that you don't regularly experience joy in your life and that's okay but what it doesn't mean is that we have to change our definition of joy to fit within the parameters of our own experiences like it is totally possible for someone in this room to hear this and read this psalm and hear this description of joy and be like i can't relate to that like that's okay and now it's not to say that Israel's experience of this was, was something that they did every single day. Like, realistically, the joy that's being painted here is not necessarily common. 
they're reflecting on a time when this happened. And we'll see that the latter portion of this psalm is praying that it would happen again. And so I don't want you to hear me say that you always need to be billowing with laughter or overflowing with energy and, and, and laughing all the time. And if you're not, then something's wrong with you. Like there's something wrong with you if your cheeks aren't hurting from smiling all the time. That's not what I'm trying to communicate. See, Caitlin reflects on her experience of cheek soreness with it being in a unique time in her life. Uh, one that brings sweet memories of appreciation. But joy is a guiltless, pleasurable experience. And so I think most of us, when we see this picture of joy being painted, would say, I want me some of that. Like, I want to feel like that. I want to laugh. I want my cheeks to hurt. And look, I know that some of us here can be really cynical. Some of my closest friends in this room are self-described Eeyores, who are perfectly content and comfortable being mildly sad and are by nature a bit negative, like they would say this about themselves. And so I don't want to attack you if you're, you're in this place where joy, as it's being communicated here, seems very outlandish, but I do want to challenge you that, that, that one, this is a biblical description of true godly joy and the way that it was designed to be experienced. And two, that this is the type of joy that, that you're invited into experiencing. Even if laughing until your cheeks and your sides hurt doesn't seem pleasurable to you, or if you can't imagine yourself being so joyful that you're shouting out loud, this nevertheless is a picture of joy that the entire community of Israel could relate to. It was a collective experience of laughter and of excitement. Well, how does this joy come about for Israel? Did someone just tell like a, a killer joke and everyone was just laughing? What we see in this psalm is that Israel's joy was a result of being restored by God. Joy originates from God. So there's no shortage of ideas for how to increase our joy as humans. One of the top search results on Google is this article published by Jude Baiju. She's a psychotherapist out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, and she has seven ways that you can increase joy in your life. I just want to highlight three for you, okay? So, number one, undertake a challenging activity with a commitment to mastering it. So, the process of setting a goal, learning the necessary steps to achieve it, and giving it your best until you've mastered it will generate high self-esteem and pride. Those are feelings associated with joy. Number two, engage in an activity that's pleasurable and feels like play. Do an uplifting and enjoyable activity that's not goal-oriented, but just plain fun, like throwing a Frisbee with your dog. This is a quote, by the way. I'm not making this up. Play and other activities that don't have a purpose other than helping us feel relaxed and happy. Uh, keep our mind focused on the present. The present is where joy lives. Number three, honor yourself consciously and frequently. Joy doesn't come from others. It comes from within. Interrupt negative thoughts about yourself and replace them with statements that honor yourself, such as, I'm fine the way I am. I'm whole and complete. I did my best. I can do this. I love myself. What I'm seeking is within me. Also, focus on the good and what you did well. Write down self-appreciation so you can read and say them frequently. And more, the more you reinforce these concepts, the more they'll become reality. So on the surface, there doesn't seem to be anything incredibly wrong with Jude's suggestions. I think they're largely on par with how most people around us would answer the question of how do, how do you increase joy, how do you maximize joy in your life? They're rooted in these concepts of taking pride in our work, taking pride in ourselves, and, and just kind of taking time to enjoy ourselves. And that's how to increase and maximize joy in our lives. And that's really nice. 
And, and if I weren't a Christian, and if I didn't believe the Bible as the ultimate authority on this, then I would be tempted to just like end here with the sermon. And the problem with the world's suggestion for increasing and maximizing joy is that it really does conflict with what we see in Scripture. So let me reread the section of Psalm 126 that I read a second ago, and I want, you, I want to see if you can pick up the differences. So starting in verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. See, Israel's experience of joy is not about them taking pride in their work. They're not saying uh, that, that, man, we are awesome people. They're saying when the Lord had restored us. They're not reminiscing about a time that they were throwing a frisbee with their dog. They're saying uh, the Lord has done great things for us. Their source of joy is not focusing on the things that they did well or peppering themselves with self-affirmations. Their, their joy was a result of their experiences of the grace and the mercy that came from God. And that is where true and ultimate joy comes from. Now, this is not to say that we can't experience happiness or, or shades and shadows of joy in other places in our lives. Like, when you take a delicious bite of food, like the most delicious bite you've ever taken, and, and your heart is full, and you are grinning as you chew, like, is that joy? I think on some level, yeah, that, that, that's a piece of joy. Or maybe when you worked for years on your master's thesis or, or your dissertation, and you finally have the opportunity to defend it, and, and you walk out of that meeting just beaming, and you are relieved. Like, is that joy that you're experiencing? Yeah, I think so. Or maybe you've just been through nine months of pregnancy, and you've just gone through 18 hours of labor, and you finally get to hold your baby, and you get to see his or her face for the first time. Like, is that a moment of joy? Yes. Absolutely. But when we experience these moments of joy and, and we reflect on them, these are not opportunities for us to kind of pat ourselves on the back or maybe high-five the chef who cooked the food. But what we ought to be channeling is the sober appreciation that we saw a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 124. In Psalm 124, verses 1 and 2, David says, If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, and he continues on to talk about their demise if God wasn't on their side. That week we talked about how King David had this acute awareness of his dependence on God. Not just to win battles, not just to lead a nation, but really to, to like sustain his life with each breath of air and, and each beat of his heart. And as he recalls one of the times that he and Israel narrowly escaped defeat and death by the hands of the Philistines, he doesn't pat himself on the back. He doesn't flex his army. He doesn't praise his own military genius for getting them out of a tight spot. No, he leads Israel in a chorus of praise and singing to God that if it wasn't for God, they would be dead. And if we can have this similar spiritual awareness and this humility for how responsible God is for the things that we experience it allows us to see and appreciate where true joy comes from. And so we experience joy when we take that bite of perfectly cooked steak. But if it wasn't for God, we wouldn't have the taste buds to even enjoy that food. We wouldn't have the resources to pay for that food. We wouldn't have the literal ability to chew on that food with the teeth and the jaw muscles that God has given us. 
And so you may experience joy when you get your master's degree or they give you your PhD, but if it wasn't for God, you wouldn't even have the capacity to finish your research or your dissertation. You wouldn't be able to have the opportunity to even get into your program. Like if it wasn't for God who was on your side blessing you and sustaining you and keeping your brain both sane and functional, you wouldn't have been able to make it out of grade school. When Caitlin and I, and when Caitlin was pregnant with Chloe, it was, it was a terrifying experience. Uh, Caitlin was preeclampsic for the majority of her, her pregnancy. And I'm not a doctor, but preeclampsia is basically this condition that, where your body has really high blood pressure and, and it starts damaging your, your major organs. And so we go to the hospital after uh, Caitlin had labored at, day, uh, at home all day. And they tell us, hey, you're not quite there yet. So we need you to, you know, we're going to give you a, a prescription for some Ambien, which is sleeping medication. You're going to go home. You're going to sleep through the night. In the morning, you're going to come back and we're going to deliver this baby. And we're like, oh, all right. So we got to wait some more time. And Caitlin's ready to have this baby. Um, and right as they're discharging us, the nurse comes in and says, hey, is anyone taking your blood pressure? And we're like, no, they haven't. So the nurse really quickly takes the blood pressure and is like, oh, wow, your blood pressure is super high right now. We should, t we should do some blood tests. And at that point, like, we just want to go home. We're, we're exhausted. Um, but they, they do the blood test, and they come back, and the nurse is like, you have severe preeclampsia, and we need to induce you right now. Right? And they were just about to send us home with some sleeping pills, right? And so they bring us downstairs, and it's kind of a, a, a crazy whirlwind. A few hours later, the doctor comes into me. He's like, hey, mama's not looking good. Baby's not looking good. This baby's got to come out right now. And I was like, okay, well, when are we going to do this? And he, I remember she, like, threw me a pair of scrubs. She's like, right now. So, like, I put on this, the scrubs, and, like, within 10 minutes, I hear the loud and healthy screaming of my baby girl. And I tell you this story because when I roll around with her, laughing and having fun with her, and when I hold her and just look into her eyes and see that incredible smile that just fills me and, and overflows me with absolute joy, do you think I'm praising myself for being able to have that joy in that moment? Am I like, hey, Caitlin, great job beating that preeclampsia. Like, you really showed it who's boss. No, I look at both of them with, with an overflowing amount of gratitude and appreciation for the fact that if it were not for the Lord who was on our side, neither of them would be here today. And James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The things we experience, the blessings that we receive, they might induce joy, but all good things and blessings originate from God. He is the ultimate source of all our joy. And if we stop short in our understanding of where true joy comes from, we actually miss out on a part of that joy. It's like if someone sends you an incredibly thoughtful, awesome gift in the mail, and, and as it's delivered, like you go and you high-five and hug the delivery man that hands it over to you without ever even acknowledging where it came from. See, there's an aspect of joy that's completed when we acknowledge the person who blesses us, the person who's responsible for our joy. This is why when we are truly blessed by someone, like it feels wrong to not say thank you or, or to tackle them with a hug. That's part of the experience of joy. This is captured really well in the doxology. It, it, it's a common hymn uh, that's often sung in the church, which was originally written in 1674, and it goes like this. I'm not going to sing it. Robert would always do this. I'm not, gonna, I'm not like that dude, okay? But it says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him 
all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. See, notice the acknowledgement that all blessings are flowing from God. And this hymn is actually based on the verse that I just shared in, in James 1. But what's more is that this hymn calls all creatures here below to respond to those blessings in a particular way. Not by patting ourselves on the back, not by quietly enjoying our blessings by ourselves in a corner, but by singing, by praising God. The, the hymn is exhorting us in light of James chapter 1 and the, and, and the fact that all good gifts come from, the, from our Father in heaven. Like if you've received a good gift, if you've been blessed in a way that, that brings you joy, you praise God. Like that is the appropriate response when we have been blessed. And one of the things that, that you learn when you have children is that you have to teach them to say thank you. So when Nana gives them their hundredth stuffy, you have to train them. You say, Chloe, what do you say? Right? In many ways, I think we as adults, we often need to train ourselves to have the spiritual awareness of our blessings and to have a heart of appreciation toward God. And this is what the psalmist is modeling for us. And it's an aspect of spiritual maturity for us as Christians. See, if we don't have this theological understanding of how joy works and where it originates from, then of course we're going to look around us to try to see how we can manufacture it with the things that are available to us. But here's the reality. We cannot, we cannot manufacture joy. We cannot manufacture joy. Sorry, Jude. Like no amount of frisbee with our dog or successful personal projects or letters of self-affirmation are going to bring us lasting joy. Joy is not found in material things. Even though we love getting new things and, and, and it gets us excited and our culture is so consumer-driven, like there is no doubt that, that there are things that we can buy or things that we can do that, that make us feel good or happy. But most of those things are ways for us to escape or ways to distract ourselves or maybe ways to cope. And we know this because of how, how new things get old so fast. And as soon as we stop doing fun things, the, the emptiness of life returns. And so that's why we're tempted to buy the new iPhone 27X Pro when we just bought the iPhone 26X Pro, right? And the new one has 12 cameras instead of your 11 cameras in your phone. Or, or maybe it's why we feel mildly depressed after a vacation. Or maybe it's, it's when we feel sad and lonely after hanging out with our friends. Like there's an emptiness there. It's why we binge shows late into the night. Like, those experiences of joy, like, they're temporary, and they're fleeting. They're not meant to satisfy or satiate our souls. But good gifts and blessings are meant to direct our attention and our gaze toward the source of all of our joy, the source of all the goodness and pleasure and blessings that we experience. You see this being sung in Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's Psalm 16, verse 11. See, Caitlin, I'm talking about her a lot this morning, but I just love her. Caitlin is a great gift giver. For Christmas last year, she got me these sweet buffalo hide work gloves. I actually contemplated wearing them as I was preaching. I was like, that's not the move this morning. And I lost them, and then she bought me another pair for Father's Day, and I, I still love them, like, they're, they're amazing. 
But if you were to ask me, hey, Tommy, would you rather have those gloves or your wife? I'd be like, what are you talking about, you crazy person? Right? Like, like the, the joy that, that I get from these gifts, they're enjoyed in the context of our relationship. They, they are a gesture of her love for me. They're, they're not meant to replace Caitlin. See, this is one of the ways that I think that we can understand joy in a healthy and biblical way, not as anything to pursue as an ends in, in and of itself. And Psalm 1611 helps, see, helps us see that joy is a byproduct. And the greatest experience of joy that we can have is not in academic success. It's not in career prestige or having babies or getting a new car or going on that perfect vacation. Like the greatest joy that we can have, the fullest and the truest joy that we can experience is found in being in the presence of God. That's where joy is. And many of us don't believe this because we don't have an accurate view of who God is. And so why would, we, why would we want to be in God's presence? I think I, I want us to consider that God is not only like a holy chaperone, keeping us on a tight leash and making sure that we don't get into too much trouble. Right? God is not just this eternal rule keeper or scorekeeper, making sure that we, just make, we, we do the right things for the rest of our lives. God is not this grumpy old man in the clouds, a, a distant creator who, who made everything but is now hand, mostly hands off until he gets like really upset, and then he intervenes. He's not cold. He's not unapproachable. He's not emotionless. He's not boring. Like as you read, even just the New Testament, you learn so much about God that that, that makes us actually want to be with him. What we see in scripture that Jesus is the most compassionate person that has ever lived. And, and he's drawn, and he can't help himself by just being drawn to people uh, who, who need help and who are hurting. And so he spends his day healing people and pastoring people who are sick, people who are suffering, people who are broken. Like, that's who he's drawn to. Jesus is the most generous person who's ever lived. He poured out his entire life for people. Jesus was the life of the party. People gravitated toward him from all walks of life. Jesus is the best friend that you can have. Jesus is the best brother that you could ever be related to. Jesus is the wisest counselor that you could ever ask advice from. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life willingly for us, his sheep. See, as you read the gospels and and you interact with Jesus, you learn that Jesus is the most gentle, the most meek, the most inviting, the most approachable, the most kind, the most loving person. Jesus is the most desirable person in all of existence that you would want to be in the presence of. There is nobody else that you would rather be with. And this is why the psalmist sings. This is another one, Psalm 84, verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So this is not speaking about how awesome God's house is, although it's probably pretty epic. The psalmist is saying, I want to be in your presence so bad. Like, just let me hang out in your yard. Like, I'd rather just for one day get to spend time in your house rather than having a thousand anywhere else in the world. Look, just let me be like your doorkeeper. Like, I'll hold the door for when people come in and out. Like, that's how badly I want to be with you, God. That's how desirable it is to be in Jesus' presence. And as a byproduct of being in his presence is fullness of joy, fullness. 
And so just to recap, joy is pleasurable. Joy originates from God. And fullness of joy is in the presence of God. Let's read these last verses in Psalm 126. Verse 4, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who, sh- who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And so the psalmist pivots in this latter portion of the song into a prayer that's directed to God. And the content of this prayer is going to help us further understand Israel's cause for joy. Again, here in verse 4, as with verse 1, is this idea of restoring Israel. And their joy was initially in an experience of restoration. And here we're seeing that their prayer is for more restoration. See, experiencing restoration for Israel was about more than financial prosperity or, or the development of physical infrastructure as a nation. What we see in Scripture uh, is that those things, they were indicators of rightness with God. So as God was leading and shepherding His people in the Mosaic Covenant that He had made with them, it was very clear, and He communicated this, that that there would be blessings when Israel was in close, obedient relationship with God. And then there were consequences when Israel chose to not trust God and, and to disobey Him. And so a call for restoration was not like pleading for a financial blessing or for material wealth just for the sake of having money. It was not like, God, let me hit the mega millions this week as I buy this lottery ticket. The the plea for restoration was for a restored right relationship with God. And, And David gets to the heart of this in Psalm 51 as he prays to the Lord from a place of of great sinfulness and shame and, and when he was not in right relationship with God. In Psalm 51, in verse 10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a, a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit away from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. When David experienced God's salvation, being brought into the presence of God in relationship, that brought him joy. And David is pleading with God, don't cast me away from your presence, but restore me with the joy that I had in your salvation when I was first brought into your presence, God. For Israel, this is what it meant to return to Jerusalem every single year. The opportunity to worship at the temple in the presence of God. That's why they made the trek multiple times of the year. That's why they endured the long road home, because God was waiting for them at home in Jerusalem. And and that's where his presence was, and in his presence is fullness of joy. That's what motivated them to come back to Jerusalem. But see, the, the temple in the Old Testament still had its limitations. Israel could be in the courts of the Lord, in the house of the Lord, but his actual presence was in the part of the temple that that would be protected by a giant veil, and only the high priest could go into that space. But here's the incredible thing. When Jesus died, and when he was resurrected, having defeated death by living a perfect, sinless life, that physical veil in the temple was torn. Like, the, 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 the torn that separated God's presence, his perfect, holy, righteous presence from the unholy, unrighteous people was split in half. 
And with that veil torn, it signified that we no longer need a temple in the traditional sense, that we no longer need an earthly priest or an intermediary who's holier than us to represent us before God. Jesus washes us clean. He makes us righteous. And he's made us all into priests that can enter into that space. Like, that's what it signifies by being torn. In Christ, we can approach the throne of God with confidence and be in the very presence of God. Like, if you want more joy, if, if you want joy that overflows out of your heart, that, that leads you to billowing with praise and shouts of joy, you seek the presence of God where there is fullness of joy because that's where it is. If you're not a believer, if you don't know Jesus in this intimate, personal way, like this invitation is for you. And the invitation is not for a fleeting, temporary happiness that you just feel like on Sunday morning and on Christmas and on Easter, but it's an eternally permanent source of joy found only in the presence of God. And this this joy is impossible to manufacture. And by our own power, in our sin, we cannot approach God in his perfect righteousness. In fact, we are eternally separated from his presence. But if you believe in Jesus, if you place your faith in what he has done on the cross to forgive you, to make you pure, make you holy, then you are restored into relationship with God. You get to experience the joy of salvation that David is talking about here. And you get to be in the presence of whom there is absolute joy and the greatest blessing for all of eternity. In Psalm 51, again, I just I want to read this one more time. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. If you're a Christian and you are lacking joy this morning, follow David's lead here. He's not asking for joy in work. He's not asking for joy in marriage. He's not asking for joy in children or or a quiet home or, or joy in school or joy in financial peace or joy in some sort of fun vacation or joy in a new new phone. When David is in absolute inner turmoil, as he's confronted with his own brokenness and his own sin, as he's in this pit of shame and of guilt, like he's pleading out to God, God, restore me in the joy that I have in being saved by you. Restore me to the joy of having your spirit within me, the joy that I have in your presence. Mercy House, if you're lacking in joy, stop looking for it in the things of this world. If you want joy, run to the source of it. Seek the presence of God. And we do this by spending time in his word. We do this by spending time with him in prayerful conversation with him. We do this by praising and worshiping him on a Sunday morning, but also throughout the week as well. In John 15, verse 11, this is Jesus speaking. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be may be full. Like, take a minute and soak that up. God has spoken to us so that our joy would be full. 
Like that is the purpose of him communicating to us. God has provided for us his word. He has communicated to us through the Bible. He has worked miraculously through, through thousands of years and hundreds of people and billions, maybe trillions of, of the logistics that are required to get the words of scripture into your hands and into your smartphones this morning. Why? So that Jesus' joy would be in you and that your joy would be full. Isn't that incredible? Mercy House, seek the presence of the Lord. Read and delight in his word. Reminisce in the joy of first entering into his presence. Before all the craziness that life has brought you since then, before all the responsibilities, the tasks, and the details that, that you're now managing that you never had when you first delighted in the presence of God, and pray as the psalmist does for revival and for restoration to happen again in your heart like it once did. See, the psalmist is not wearing rose-colored glasses. They acknowledge that this is a challenge, but they also have an ultimate hope knowing that the efforts and the challenges that come with walking in faithful obedience to God and, and building our house on the rock is worth it. Look at verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seeds for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy. Mercy House says, we build our house on the rock that is Jesus Christ. As we continue on this long road home, we will one day find ourselves entering into the presence of God for eternity. And by His grace, one day, we will come home with shouts of joy. Know that this joy is to be shared. Bringing the gospel of restoration into the presence of God to, to others is the mission that we're on. And so we're reminded of this every single time that we take communion each Sunday. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. The meal that we take when we do communion is one of celebration. It's representative of a wedding day feast, and that wedding has an open invitation. Communion is this balance of somber reflection, yes, but, but upon looking at an empty tomb, like we sing and we dance and we celebrate with great joy. And we invite others into that joy with us. And all together, we praise God from whom all blessings flow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word. God, we confess that we often don't experience joy. And it is a challenge for us. Now, the, the long road home, life, under the sun, there's a lot of toil, there's a lot of vanity, there's a lot of things that frustrate us, there's a lot of chaos, there's a lot of things that would want to rob us of our joy. We have an enemy whose purpose is to steal our joy. And so, God, we place our tender, humble hearts into your hands. God, we pray that you would restore in us the joy of your salvation. God, I pray that we would not look for joy in any place under the sun, anywhere in this world, 
that our hearts would be drawn to you, the source of all joy. God, I know that there are people in this room who, yeah, joy is the last thing on their minds. I pray that as they worship you, that their hearts would be unburdened, even if it's for a minute of singing these songs of worship to you, and that they would, for a minute, for a moment, experience just the joy of being in your presence. Lord, realign our hearts and our minds to this truth. And Lord, at the end of the day, we don't seek joy for the sake of joy. We seek you. We want to be in your presence. And so I pray that you would allow us to experience that now. Father, we love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.